Welcome to the Song of Songs. This is a podcast based on the book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, otherwise known as the Song of Songs. This is your host, John, and in today's episode, we are finally going to finish chapter number one, I hope. Uh, This has been a long process for us, and I've gotten sick a couple of times, and uh, that's kind of hindered my ability to upload as frequently as I want to and cover as exhaustively as I want to. But we are now into episode number 11, which is really the 10th episode of actually getting into the Song of Solomon. The first episode was just a defense of the book and an introduction to the book, introducing the characters and stuff like that. Uh, So this is really the 10th episode that we've been looking at chapter number 1, and uh, we're going to look at the last five verses or so uh, of this chapter, and there's a little bit of a back and forth here in the passage that we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, But just as a a way of context, we've been uh, going through verses 2 through 7 are the first bit of dialogue from uh, from the woman's perspective, and she is explaining uh, how much her beloved means to her, uh, and uh, she's uh, yearning after him, explaining a little bit of her, her own backstory, that she's a foreigner to the land of Israel, uh, that she's an outsider, and uh, that she doesn't deserve Solomon's affection, but she desires it. And so she says in verse number 7, Tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon, for why should I be as one that turns, that turneth aside by the flock of thy companions? And she's basically saying there, you know, I, I want to feel the same kind of embrace and tenderness that you you give to your your uh, sheep through your shepherds. You know, I want to be taken care of the same that you take care of your flock because he took very good care of his flock. He says, I want to be protected for, I want to be provided for. You know, I, I want all of these blessings and benefits that you provide for them. Why shouldn't I get those things? And as a Christian, we can go to the Lord in prayer and very reverently, but boldly, in the name of Jesus Christ, make certain demands upon the Lord Don't take me out of context there, Uh, but we can make certain demands upon the Lord based upon Scripture and His promises, what He has promised to do. And we can go to the Lord and we can say, you know, why, why am I being cast off? You know, why, why do I feel so, so detached from your presence? Because you said you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And so, Lord, I need your presence and I need your comfort and I need your cheer. And you say to come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I need that rest, Lord. And so we can go to the Lord and we can make certain demands based upon his promises and upon his character. And, and we can have confidence that God not only hears our prayer, but he will answer our prayer uh, as well. And so he says... You know, uh, the rebuttal to that, verse number 7, is in verse number 8. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women. And these are the first words spoken by Solomon, who is the Christ figure in the chapter, or in the book. Um, it says, If thou know, knowest not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. And he's basically saying, this is where you need to go in order to get help. And this is a very important thing. And when we covered this verse, we, we somewhat tried to drive this point home. That if you're a child of God, you're never going to know the full blessing of God until you get alongside the people of God. You need to, what he says in verse number 8, he says, uh, to go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock. If you want to know the comfort and the provision of the Lord, you need to join yourself by the footsteps of the flock. You need to get with other sheep, and you need to join yourself to them. Get in church. Get involved in a local church. Get joined up to a local church. And go to Bible study. Pray together. Uh, do all of these things together, uh, because that's how we grow. He says, if you don't know where to find me, 
Find my flock and join yourself to them. And he says, feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. And the shepherds were those who were employed by Solomon to take care of the sheep. Much like pastors are under shepherds, that's what we call them. Pastors are under shepherds. Uh, they take care of the flock of God uh, as the Lord directs and guides them. That's what Jesus told uh, Peter in John chapter number 21. Simon, lovest thou me, me more than these? He says, feed my lambs. And, and then he says the second time, feed my sheep. And then he says the third time, feed my sheep. And it's an interesting thing to look at the the original language in that, and I don't want to get off into that. That might be a good topic for a miscellaneous podcast, but uh, there's a difference uh, between, subtle difference between those three phrases. And of course, in the English, we see that subtle difference in that first one, feed my lambs. But then he says, feed my sheep, and the word feed is more like a pastor uh, to uh, to um, provide for and to protect and to reprimand when you need to. And then he says, feed my sheep again. Um, so anyway, we'll may cover that in a different podcast, but uh, he's saying, this is what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to be a shepherd to my sheep. And so he says to the woman, he says, if you don't know where to find me, find the shepherds, find the flock. Join yourself to them. And then he begins to uh, to describe her beauty and what she means to him. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. And we discussed uh, the probability. I'll just go ahead and say that because it's my personal conviction that the woman who is being referenced to in Song of Solomon is Pharaoh's daughter. And if you want evidence for that, if you've missed it, go back to chapter to the very first uh, episode of this podcast, and I explain all of that in there. Uh, but Solomon's, or but uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, I, I believe, was was the woman who referenced. And so he says, "I've compared thee to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots." And to her in particular, that was a, a great compliment that was being paid to her. Um, and then verse number ten: "Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels." We talked about the headdress uh, that a woman would oftentimes wear in, in a royal function, in a royal wedding, that she would adorn herself with with a, a headdress that perhaps had uh, jewels coming down and, and adorning the cheeks of, of the woman with that. And so that's what that's talking about there. Thy ch- neck with chains of gold, and those are necklaces. He says, we will make thee borders of gold with studs of sil- silver. He says, you've adorned yourself with this headdress, and you look fantastic and you're beautiful and you know you're adorned but i want to adorn you with something of my own too and so he says we will make the borders of gold that's a crown a border is something that goes around the edge of something and so you you think of that the the imagery that's being presented here the border of gold would be a crown of gold with studs of silver adornments places within the crown that had uh studs of silver in them he says, you've adorned yourself, but I'm going to adorn you as well. And the Christian, of course, we cannot adorn ourselves in any sense in our own flesh. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. But when we come to into a relationship with God by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his blood, then we can put on his robes of righteousness and we can put on a practical righteousness. We can follow him. We can obey him. We can uh, we can receive his commandments and, and, and then dispense those commandments as well, begin to teach and apply them to our lives and, and, and disciple other people. And there are things that we can do after we come into a relationship with God by faith through Jesus Christ. There's things Things that we can do that he looks upon us and and he sees as adornments because they're not being done in the flesh they're being done in the spirit right and so when we put on spiritual fruit we are being adorned but he's still going to adorn us even further 
with a crown of righteousness that will be given to everyone that loves his appearing. appearing. That's found in 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And so we covered all of these things, and, and we've come up to this kind of penultimate uh, conversation, this back and forth between the woman and, and the man uh, about how precious they are to each other. And so there's a little bit of back and forth in the verses that we're going to read for our text today. Verse number 12 and verse number uh, 13 and verse number 14, I believe, are all spoken from the perspective of the woman. Verses 15 and verse verse number 15, I believe, is spoken from the perspective of the man. Verse number 16 and 17 are, I believe, spoken from the perspective of the woman. And we'll get into that in just a moment. So he says, verses 12 through 14, and these are some of my favorite verses in the entire cha- in the entire book, okay? So I'm going to try not to geek out on you too much, but I'm going to geek out on you a little bit, all right? Because this is precious to me. And he says, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. And you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's read into this, okay? While the king sitteth at his table. This would be a dinner table, okay? A place of fellowship. Who was invited to dine with the king? Only people who had special favor given to them. I mean, we, we remember David and Mephibosheth, right? Mephibosheth was uh, the the grandchild of Saul and uh, was one that got, that David wanted to take care of to repay uh, Saul uh, for you know the position that he had, but mainly to repay Jonathan for the kindness that he had given to them. Of course, Saul and Jonathan had both been dead at this point. And so Saul brought in Mephibosheth into his family, into his home, and said, you're going to eat at my table, and, and it, was, it was an amazing honor that was placed upon Mephibosheth. So to think, you know, to be able to sit and to dine, not only in the same room or in the same company, but at the table of the king, that was a precious honor, okay? And it was an honor, obviously, that was going to be afforded to the woman, to the wife of, of the king, but we find here still, while the king is sitting at his table, while the king sitteth at his table, she says, My spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. And spikenard was a very common perfume. It was a very precious perfume. I don't want to necessarily say common, but it was a precious perfume that was used commonly uh, in situations like this. Spikenard was uh, was something that smelled very good, was very pleasant, and uh, was costly, and so uh, she... She adorned herself with the spikenard, and she said, while we're sitting at the table together, I'm going to adorn myself, I'm going to, you know, make sure that I'm sending forth a pleasing aroma to him. And everything that we do as a Christian should be done in order to please the one that we love. Whenever, uh, if you are married, whenever you make those vows... And, and you make that promise that you're going to be there in sickness and in health for richer, for poor, all of these different things. What, you're, what you were essentially saying is, my life is not my own anymore. I am joining my life to yours. And what I do, I'm going to seek to, to do what I do for your benefit and for your pleasure as well. There are some things that I do in my relationship with my wife or the way that I conduct myself in my own home, that I, if I were by myself, living by myself, not married, that I would do differently. Okay, there's there was one habit of life that I had when I was not married, and now there's a different habit of life that I have now. I, I'm 
I, I, I'm a little bit scatterbrained in ca- case you haven't noticed from listening to me. Um, I, I leave cabinet doors open all the time. And sometimes I just leave piles of junk somewhere. I'm in the middle of a project. And so I don't necessarily clean up after myself after, during this project because I know I'm going to come back to it in an hour or in a day or whatever. And so I want to come back to it and just be able to pick up where I left off. Those are some of the kinds of things that just drive my wife insane. And so when I think about it, I'll be honest, I'm not always thinking about it, but when I think about it, I'll try to close a cabinet door. If I see a cabinet door open, that doesn't necessarily bother me, but it bothers my wife, and so I go and I close that. I close that because I, it, it, it's a menial thing. It's a small thing, but those small things add up. If you just continually and constantly neglect to do the little things to help alleviate the pressure and and the burden off of somebody else, you're just going to weigh them down. And I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, just me leaving my my cabinet doors open, you know, that's going to be a case for a breakdown for my wife, but you know, it's something that I can do for her that will please her, make her load a little bit lighter down the road, and why not? Why not do that? Okay? So it's not something that necessarily bothers me, but it's something that helps her and benefits her. So I'm going to do it. Everything that we do in our Christian life, or in life in general, ought to be done in the pursuit of pleasing the Lord. To do all things for His glory, for His honor, for His pleasure. Okay, All things were made for Him, by Him, for His pleasure. Okay, We find those principles in Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter number 1, as well as in Revelation chapters 3 and 4, in the heavenly songs there of, or, uh, of worship, or chapters 4 and 5, rather, of, of Revelation. And so she's saying here, she's saying, I'm sitting at the table with the king, which in and of itself is amazing. I'm sitting at the table with the king, but I'm going to make sure I'm coming in the best position, the best state that I can come. I'm going to come and please him. And verse number 13, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Okay, so a bundle of myrrh. Myrrh was uh, and is uh, a very precious thing. Um, it, it is an oil. Uh, you can extract oil from myrrh, and uh, it's very medicinal and helpful. It's it's pleasant in, in the way that it smells. All in all, just just a good thing. Remember the the gifts that the wise men brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Okay, myrrh was a very precious thing, uh, and and still is to this day. And she says that my well-beloved is unto me as a bundle of myrrh. Not just, uh, you know, uh, one plant, but a bundle of it. This is a a whole, I think of a bundle as, uh, you know, we, we burn firewood in my house. I think of a bundle as a bundle of wood. This is an armload. This is as much as you can carry. She says, this is what my beloved, my well-beloved is unto me. He is like a bundle of myrrh. He is as much myrrh as I can handle, as much myrrh as I can, I can carry on my own. He overloads me with this. There is healing in his wings, we find, uh, in Malachi chapter number four, I believe. Uh, there is healing in his wings. There, is there not a balm in Gilead? Uh, that's what he says in, in the book of uh, Jeremiah. Uh, he, he, so we find, you know, he is a bundle of myrrh. He is very precious, uh, but you can have as much of him as you can handle. 
If you pursue after him, that you will never exhaust his supply of mercy. You will never exhaust his supply of wisdom. You will never exhaust his supply of forgiveness, of tenderness, of compassion. You will never exhaust him, period. Okay? He is like a bundle of myrrh. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved well unto me. And then this, this last phrase, to some, you may shy away from it just because of the language of it, but it's very precious, okay? It says, He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts, to lie on the chest and to hear the heartbeat of the one that you love. She is affording him that opportunity. She is allowing him to get close to her and to hear her heartbeat and to feel her comfort and her presence. And that is a very precious thing. And that's something that we need to understand in our day. We seem to be private people, and yet we post everything on Facebook. But we seem to be private people today. We don't really want people to know how we're feeling or, or know what we're thinking. But what she is saying here in this verse, in this passage of Scripture, is she's saying, I want him close to me. I want him to lay his head on my chest and to hear my heartbeat and to feel my breathing. I want him to be as ever close to me as he will as he will want to be. I I don't want to be the one restricting intimacy or closeness in our relationship. I don't want to be the one stiff-arming stiff him away. I don't want to be the one that's pushing and driving him away and saying, you know, you know, now's not a good time, or whatever the case may be. She's saying, I want him to hear my heartbeat, to hear my breath, to know my comfort, to know my presence, to be with me. That's what I want. Search me, O oh God. Try me. I, I'm, I'm reading through a book right now on uh, the, the Lord's Supper from uh, Thomas Watson. And Thomas Watson is one of my favorite uh, authors. But he's talking about the different types of faith in which you come to the Lord's Supper, and uh, he's talking about a hypocritical faith. Now, I'll just read a little bit of this, okay, to you. This is not something that I normally do, but it's something that I read last night and uh, and again this morning, and I think it plays into this, okay? A hypocritical faith is afraid to come to trial. Uh, the hypocrite would rather have his faith commended than examined. He can no more endure a scripture trial than a counterfeit metal can endure the touchstone. And the touchstone is the way through which uh, precious metals are tested. He is like a man that has stolen goods in his house and is very unwilling to have his house searched. So the hypocrite has forgotten some stolen goods that the devil has helped him to, and he is loath to have his heart searched. Loath means to, to disdain something or to hate something. So he is loath to have his heart searched. He hates to have his heart searched. Whereas true faith is willing to come to a trial, examine me, O Lord, and prove me, try my reins in my heart. David was not afraid to be tried by a jury. No, though God himself were one of the jury, good wares are never afraid of the light. That's essentially what the woman is saying here. She's saying, I want you to be close to me. I want you to know me. I want you to know me in a way that nobody else knows me. And we ought to have that kind of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next verse, verse 14. <laughs> Wow, I love it. Uh, verse 14, My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of En Gedi. And you say, why in the world are you so excited about that verse? Well, let me tell you why I'm so excited about that verse and why this is probably one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 
my beloved is unto me. So the term beloved, when you find it in the Song of Solomon, most often, if not all the time, beloved is the, the endearing term from the wife uh, concerning the husband. So we know she is talking about him. My beloved is unto me. And so you talk about value. If you, if you value something, you know, how you value something may be different than how other people value something. I've, I've got a pickup truck that is a 1997 Dodge Ram. It's an SST model, super sport truck. They only made uh, 6000 I think, in two years, 1997 and 1998. Um, they're, they're rare. They're, they're not common at all. You don't see a lot of them around. Um, and, and if you understand economics at all, you understand the principle of, you know, supply and demand and all of that. Well, there's not a very big supply of these trucks. There's only 6,000 of them that were made. Um, but there's also not a very big demand of them. So even though they're rare, they're not incredibly valuable. I think the Kelly Blue Book value on it, if it were like in really good condition, it's like six, $7,000, something like that. Not very expensive at all and ours mine is not in good condition at all um this truck has 297,000 miles on it uh it has a bad transmission on it um you know it, it needs a lot of work it's it's got dings and dents all over it the bumper is missing because i took it off because it was in a in a collision and and like the truck is beat up it's not worth very much if I were to go and just try to sell this truck, I would be lucky to get $500 for it, right? It's not very valuable, but to me, it's priceless. It's priceless to me because this was the first truck that my dad, or my first vehicle that my dad ever bought brand new, okay? Uh, it's valuable to me just because of what it is. I mean, it's black with silver racing stripes, and I'm enough of a child inside to say, that's cool. So... It's valuable to me in that sense. But most importantly, I took my wife on our first date in that truck. I've I've got a lot of firsts in that truck. I had my first collision in that truck. I rear-ended somebody in that truck. No, I, I nearly spun that truck out. Uh, there's a lot of good memories that are associated with that truck. Um, and so even though it's not worth very much, it has a great value to me. Now, don't misuse my words here in that analogy there. The value that is set upon the Lord Jesus Christ is invaluable. I mean, how can you price the one who made everything? How can you set the value of the one who, who has a name that is above every name? So the value of the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely higher than anything else, period. But some people don't value him. In fact, most of the world hates him, reviles him, scoffs and mocks his name. But what the passage here says is not my beloved is as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of En Gedi, but she's saying my beloved is unto me. I place this value upon him. This is how precious he is to me. Now we can talk about how precious Jesus is, but it's far better for us in this particular context, to look at how much we value him individually, and that will be seen by the way that we live our lives. How precious is he to you? My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire 
in the vineyards of En Gedi. So let's actually look at this, this phrase and see what this means. A cluster of camphor. Now, this is not camphor, C-A-M-P-H-O-R. That's a completely different thing. Camphor is an old English word, probably uh, that references to um, to what we would know as, as henna. That's pretty much the, the common conclusion. Um, very precious dye uh, plant. Um, you know, there, there are certain things about it that are, that are precious. Honestly, we don't fully know what exactly this is referring to. The best guess is henna, but we don't, we don't fully know. But nonetheless, it is something that is precious. It is something that is precious to the woman in general, or in particular. So she says, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor. So camphor was a very precious thing, obviously. Now, a cluster, that's that same kind of terminology as a bundle, right? Uh, in verse number 13, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. She's saying, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor. You think of a cluster as a cl cluster of grapes. This is not just one lump or one group of camphor. This is, and, and I think about, you know, them going to the promised land and, and spying out the land in Kadesh, out of Kadesh Barnea. And uh, they come back with these huge clusters of grapes and they're not able to, you know, they're, they're barely able to carry them. And, and it's weighing them down. That's kind of what I think of when I think of a cluster. If you ever see grapes coming off of the actual vine, um, you know, there's, there's a cluster of them together. There's a great supply, a quantity of them. So she's saying, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire. So it's not just, you know, one vial of camphor, but it's a cluster of camphor. And so she's saying, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor. And she doesn't even just say that she says she gives a location to this this is extremely important because there are certain contexts and places in which certain things are more valuable to us i remember hearing a preacher preach some time ago and uh, he he's an older man who's been around the block started preaching when he was uh, a teenager and this was years and years decades ago and, and so he said he was preaching one night and and he was preaching hard and his throat was dry and he needed some water and there was no water to be had but he looked down on the lord's supper table but uh, in front of the the pulpit and there was a glass of flowers of roses and that that vase of flowers had some water in the bottom of it and he said, I was so thirsty that in that moment, in that time, I just had to have water and I didn't care where it came from. And so he got down and he grabbed that vase full of flowers and he drank the water out of it. And people were confused and shocked about that. But you know, there's a certain place where you just need water and you don't care so much where it comes from. Obviously, there's some constraints as to where it comes from. You know, there's some places, but if you get thirsty enough, you'll, you'll drink water out of a mud hole. You'll, you'll, you'll do what you have to do because if you get desperate enough in a certain position, in a certain context, in a certain place, then something that you know might be in well supply right now, something when it's in short supply becomes extremely valuable. And there's again that principle of economics of supply and demand. If there is a great demand for something and no supply for it, if you really want it, but there's not a lot of it, the value of it goes up. And so she's saying that my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor, and here's the context of where she's at, in the vineyards of En Gedi. Now, in order to understand this, we have to know where En Gedi is, and what En Gedi is. En Gedi is also mentioned in the scriptures. You might remember, this is a place that's, that uh, David fled to uh, when he was running from Saul. 
in Gedi, if you look at a map of Israel, and Gedi is still there, there's actually a, a park there uh, at, in Gedi. But if you look at a map of Israel, in Gedi is right along the banks of the Dead Sea. And it is also in the middle of the wilderness of Judea. It is right along the banks of the Dead Sea, and it is literally, it is surrounded. On one side, you've got the Dead Sea, and on every other corner, there's just nothing but barrenness. There's no life, there's no vegetation, but in Gedi is a literal oasis. What an oasis is, is a place in the middle of a desert that is a spring of life. And so you've got desert, 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 as far as the eye can see. And then all of a sudden you come upon this place that has lush vegetation. And you've got trees that are standing, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet tall. And you've got plants that are growing. And, and, and all of a sudden you go from this dry, barren land to a place where you can survive and thrive in. And she's saying, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. She says, it's as if I have been walking my entire life in the wilderness, in the desert, and now I found you, and you are like to me as coming across a cluster of camphor in this middle, middle of this lush oasis that sits in the middle of a dry, thirsty, barren land. I have everything that I need as long as I stay in Gedi, as long as I stay in the presence of my well-beloved, as long as I stay with him, I have everything that I need. And that is the principle that is given here in this verse. It's precious. So then we say in verse number 15, we see, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Now, this verse, I believe, is spoken from the perspective of the husband. And the reason for that is the term love in the Hebrew carries with it the idea of a female companion. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Now, there, there are two different ways of looking at the passage. You can look at it from either perspective. I personally take the stance that this is spoken from the perspective of the husband to the wife. And so I'll cover that first. She said, or he says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. And you just think about that. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, we, we go back to verse number 8. Oh, thou fairest among women. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us who were, again, dead in our trespasses and sins, rebels against God, revilers of God, at enmity against God, enemies and haters of God. And now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are changed and we have been reconciled to God. And now, he says of us, thou art fair. You're fair. You're beautiful, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. And doves have very big, very blue eyes. And doves also are the, the symbol and the picture of peace. And so you see here uh, a picture that is given to us uh, uh, of the beauty and the, the gentleness and tenderness of the bride. Of course, if you take the other application, you know, and you look at this and say, well, what if this is speaking from the woman's perspective? I don't personally believe that it is, but it still holds a very valuable application that is seen throughout the rest of Song of Solomon as well, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. I mean, is that that is what Solomon means. Solomon means peace. He is the King of Peace. Thou art uh, a priest forever, O Lord, after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the King of Salem. King of Salem, that is modern-day Jerusalem. Uh, the term Salem, uh, the 
phrase Salem, word Salem rather, is in Jerusalem, Salem, Jerusalem, uh, king forever out of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of peace. That's who Jesus is. Thou art uh, fair, my love. He is fair. There is no spot in him. Uh, so we can take that and apply that um, that way, but I still, again, believe this is spoken from the perspective of the husband. But then in verse number 16 and verse number 17, you have uh, the perspective of the woman, I believe, being brought up again. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. And so you see this this back and forth. You know, He says to her, thou art fair, and she says, well, you, you're fair. Thou art fair, my beloved. Yea, pleasant. Isn't he pleasant? He says, our bed is green, lively, uh, a place of, of life and vibrance and fellowship. And this is the place, the, the most intimate place that a husband and wife can have. The marriage bed is, is undefiled before the Lord, the scripture says. Uh, and, and so it was it, it was a way of expressing you know, the, the life and vibrance and fellowship that they have one with another. Thou art fair, my beloved, but yea, pleasant, also our bed is green. Bed is also a place for rest. And so uh, there is a lively rest that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. And she's talking about the house that she had, that he had made for her. Again, lending into itself uh, the idea that uh, this is probably uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Because Pharaoh's daughter is the only one of Solomon's wives who was given a house as an extension that was an extension to Solomon's palace before Solomon finished the temple uh, that he had built for Pharaoh's daughter a house that was annexed conjoined to his own palace so that's what she says she says the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fur and in there's definition or definition descriptions of how that house was built that line up with this verse talking about be, uh, beams of cedar and whatnot, and and this is um, a very precious wood. Even today, cedar is very expensive to work with. Um, my brother, my neighbor have a sawmill. Uh, cedar is one of the hardest woods to get a hold of. Everybody wants it. It's expensive. It's well and desired. Um, it takes a long time to grow, um, but and it's beautiful and it smells good. The cedars that they're talking about are. Probably the cedars of Lebanon, and these trees stood like a hundred feet tall. They were huge, very, very precious, very expensive, and Solomon imported a lot of cedar for the building of his own house, for the building of his wife's house, of Pharaoh's daughter's house, and for the building of the temple as well. So she's saying here, "You've spared no expense in building me a house." Now, obviously, we can go to John 14. And says, the Lord Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And we have here a clear picture again. The Lord Jesus Christ has built us a house and an inheritance, and he has spared no expense. It's been purchased and paid for in his own blood. And the relationship that we get to have with him is precious. Oh, my friend, I hope and pray that this passage of Scripture becomes half as dear to you as it is to me, and I pray that it continues to grow even more dear to me as the days go on. I hope and pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you, and uh, if you don't know Him, I pray you come to the knowledge of Him very soon. By faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abandon all confidence and hope in self, 
and, and trust in him and find that he is the fairest of them all. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in his word.